So Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai ill-treated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, which means God hears. For the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Bir Lacha Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. I uh, really would like you to have a Bible, so if you don't have one, uh, then please uh, wave your hand again or get your phone out and find it on your phone but we really would like you to have that passage ahead of you. Partly because uh, the NIV that we've just had read to us, the translation doesn't always do us any favours, so later on I want to point out a couple of places uh, where I think we're missing something. I don't know whether it's just because I've worn glasses since I was seven, and I'm incredibly short-sighted, but one of my all-time favourite series of adverts is uh, from Specsavers. The one where it says, uh, somebody makes a mistake, and then it says, you should have gone to Specsavers. And that's the kind of term that's gone into our national vocabulary, I think. Um, you might recognize this extra one behind me, the next one. Do you remember when Luis Suarez beat, uh, bit Chiellini? And the next day in the uh, newspaper was this advert with Cannelloni saying you should have gone to Specsavers, which I thought was genius. And then in the London Olympics, uh, somebody made the mistake of showing the South Korean flag on the screen when it was actually the North Korean women's football team. And the next day, which was total genius in the paper, was this advert with the two flags and saying you should have gone to Specsavers. The whole Specsavers advertising campaign is based around the idea of somebody making a mistake because they couldn't see. And in today's passage in Genesis 16, we've got lots of mistakes being made, serious mistakes, life-changing mistakes, because people couldn't see properly. 
not because they couldn't physically see properly, but because they had the wrong view of their situation and of their circumstances and of their God. And in fact, I think that sight and seeing is a key theme of Genesis 16. It's as if the author of the passage is building us up to verse 13, that key moment when Hagar calls God El Roy, the God who sees me. So I want to look at the passage, Genesis 16, and it is an odd episode, and it's not very encouraging when you're starting to work on a sermon, when the first question you ask yourself is, what on earth is this passage doing in the Bible? Because there's a strong narrative going on in these early chapters of Genesis, and this passage doesn't appear to fit. It's like a dead end. You think you know where you're going with God, uh, and all of a sudden you find yourself down this Hagar-shaped alley, and you think, what's this here for? Because back in chapter 12 of Genesis, God chooses Abraham and gives him a blessing, a threefold blessing. You're going to have a great land, you're going to have a great family, and you're going to have a great blessing, which will be a blessing to all the nations. And the narrative of Genesis is that that blessing, with a few bumps along the way, would get passed on to Isaac and then Jacob, and then in a God-ordained way, get passed from generation to generation. And then Hagar comes along, with her son Ishmael, and it just seems like a mistake's been made, that we've hit this dead end, it's an unfortunate bump in the narrative. I mean, it seems very clear, doesn't it, that Ishmael is not the son that God has promised to Abraham. So what is this passage all about? Why is it here? Why is there a chapter now and a chapter later in Genesis spent on this story of Hagar? And as Bible-believing Christians, we believe that the word of God is God-inspired, that there's nothing there by mistake. So we have to grapple with the question, what on earth is this passage doing in the Bible? And as I dug down and tried to read what other people thought, because that's always a good place to start, most commentators answered the question actually not really talking about Hagar. They talk about Abraham and Sarai and say that this passage is there to show you how important it is to trust God and his promises, to walk in step with him, not try and seek to solve our problems and our own strength. It's there to teach us that we should say, I did it God's way, not I did it my way. And of course, that's all really important, and there could be easily a series of sermons on that. But we're in a series of sermons called uh, Encounters with God or Drawing Close to God. So that's not where I'm heading. Some other people say, no, 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 this is all about Ishmael and the impact he has on the future of humanity, a huge impact. But also, because it's not the series we're in, that's not where I'm heading, I want us to think about Hagar's encounter with God. And to do that, uh, to help us to see more clearly, to carry on the metaphor, we're often a visit to the opticians. And that's going to take us back into Genesis 15. So if you've got a Bible, just flick back with me a page into Genesis 15. I want to look at the last few verses. For those of you that have been Christians for a while or know your Bible well, you know that Genesis 15 is a really pivotal chapter in the Bible. It's a chapter where God reaffirms his blessing, his promises to Abraham, that he'd have a son and be the father of nations. And then the incredible thing is that God, in a foreshadowing of the cross, uh, passes between the sacrifices that have been cut in two. And he's signifying not only is he going to make the covenant, this promise with Abraham, but he's also going to promise to keep the covenant. He's going to keep both sides of the promise. He initiates the covenant and then commits to keeping it. 
And then we leave chapter 15 in verse 18 with God saying, to your descendants, I give this land. To your descendants, there's a firm promise there. You're going to have a son. You're going to have a family. A huge spiritual high Abraham must have been on. How trusting of God he must be. And yet, when we enter into chapter 16, we find that 10 years have passed, 10 years of huge disappointment for them as a couple, 120 months have gone without any sign of a child, and they're struggling to trust God in that situation. And this brings me to my first point. A wrong vision leads to wrong decisions. A wrong vision leads to wrong decisions. I think I've only ever seen Jeremy Kyle once. I know some of you are huge fans. Uh, but the first, chapter, the first verses of Genesis 16 reads a little bit like an ancient version of Jeremy Kyle. And there's loads of people looking in the wrong direction, having short-sightedness, looking at the wrong things, and leading to wrong decisions. And this is where I don't think the NIV helps us sometimes with our translation, because we miss out on some of the seeing and sight metaphors that are in there. So first of all, there's the wrong way in which Abraham and Sarai look at Hagar. If you look at verses 2 and 5 and verse 6, Sarai doesn't even use Hagar's name. He call, she calls her that slave girl. They probably picked Hagar up on when they went off to Egypt, maybe as a parting gift from Pharaoh. And here's this invisible slave girl. They can't even use her name. And there's also, though, the wrong way in which Sarai and Abraham perceive their situation. In verse 2, Sarai starts with, Behold, or look, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. They've got this wrong view of God and of his promises. Just like Adam and Eve had a wrong view of God and his promises back in the Garden of Eden. And that wrong view, that wrong vision, leads them to making very bad decisions. Just like Adam and Eve made bad decisions. And they look somewhere else to fulfill the promise that God has made them. Their eyes turn away from God and turn to Hagar. And Abraham goes and sleeps with Hagar. So then in verse 4, we read of how Hagar responded when she discovered that she was pregnant. Our NIV says she began to despise her mistress, but apparently the original says she looked with contempt, or she looked down on her mistress. We don't know exactly how, but Hagar's carrying this baby that her mistress Sarai couldn't have, and she chooses to flaunt it. Maybe she rubs her stomach, she laughs with the other slave girls. She just generally makes Sarai feel totally miserable. So Sarai goes off to Abraham to complain. And then Abraham uses another sight metaphor, again, which we uh, lose. We have do with her whatever you think best. Actually, I think the original says do whatever you see fit. So he washes his hands of Hagar, says to Sarai, you do what you want with her. And again, we don't know exactly what happens, but... Sarah teaches uh, or treats Hagar so badly that Hagar has to flee. She runs off into the desert, as verse 6 tells us. See, everyone's eyes in this story are looking to the wrong place. They've all got the wrong vision of things. And that's making a huge number of wrong decisions. It leads to God's promises being forgotten, God being cut out of the picture, Sarai being mocked this slave woman, Hagar, being mistreated, and then her fleeing out into the desert. And by the time we get to verse 7, 
we find Hagar by a well or a fountain or a spring in the desert, exhausted, furious probably, not knowing what she needs should do, feeling full of despair. And it's at this point in the wilderness, when she's exhausted and out of options, that God finds Hagar. And this leads me to my second point, and just to reassure you, it's my longest point, so when I get to that, you don't need to think, oh, he's going to do that length again. Uh, uh, my second point is, in the midst of troubles, God comes looking. Look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near the spring in the desert. The angel of the Lord finds Hagar. It's not a, he stumbles across her by accident. What a coincidence that I found you here. It's a God-ordained incident. It's rather like, and in my mind, it really conjured up the women at the well, women at the well that uh, Dave spoke to the children about earlier. God seeks out Hagar and remarkably changes her life forever. Now, there is some debate among scholars who this angel of the Lord is, but most scholars, and although I'm not a scholar, I'm going to agree with them, seem to think or say this is God in the person of the Lord Jesus himself. This idea of being found by Jesus is such a Christ-centred idea. If you think of the good shepherd finding the lost sheep, or the son of man who came to seek and save the lost. Here, Jesus has come out far into the desert, pursuing Hagar, conjuring up these images of the Samaritan woman, and the exchange that he has with Hagar transforms her life completely. And so I wanted to slow down and think about what happens when God turns his face upon us. And if you look at verse 8, the first surprise is that he calls Hagar by her name. What could be more surprising to a slave girl whose mistress and master couldn't even call her by her name? What could be more personal than having God call you by your name? It's a hugely moving, important moment for Hagar. But there's something else in verse 8. He says, Hagar, slave of Sarai. So he doesn't just call her by her name, he describes her position. I find that quite shocking, because if I was Hagar, I'd want him to say to me something like, Hagar, free woman. Hagar, woman running, going back to your place or your home in Egypt. But he doesn't. He says, Hagar, slave of Sarai. And I think it's to point out what's going to come next, to ram home to Hagar the foolishness of the situation that she's now found herself in. Because God asks her two questions, two deep questions that we all need to ask ourselves. He asks her, in verse 8, where have you come from and where are you going? Where have you come from and where are you going? You see, Hagar had a wrong view of what it was like to be living at Abraham and Sarai's place. She couldn't see that although she had a huge amount to put up with there, that she'd been treated really badly, it was actually as we read in verse, chapter 15, the place of God's blessing. She was leaving perhaps the only place in the whole of the earth where God was truly known. And by leaving that place, she was leaving a place of blessing and of privilege and fleeing to a place which was not going to be good for her. I think God wanted her to fully understand the seriousness of the, the decision that she was making. She's fled the place of God and the place of his blessing to the wilderness. And that wilderness was either going to end up with her physically dead, or if she made it back to Egypt and home, where they worship false gods, a place of spiritual death. And I wonder whether you recognise that 
decision-making in, in yourself? Have you ever been tempted to turn your back on the things of God, Christian friends, the church, because of the way his people have behaved, because of the way you felt treated? It's tempting, isn't it, to be so angry about something in the life of the church that you want to run away from it, not really caring about the consequences. And that's what Hagar's done, and it wasn't a wise decision, and God has to deal firmly but gently with her. You see, the church is just made up of people like you and me, people that are either seeking God or with the help of his Holy Spirit to live for him. We're unfinished articles, sinful people, but God isn't. Turning your back on God because of the way you've been treated, the danger is that you're going to leave the place of blessing and end up alone in the desert in spiritual wilderness. And so you're supposed to ask ourselves, in fleeing from grace and goodness and God, what is it we're running from? And really importantly, what is it you're running towards? Every single one of us is running towards something. We're either running towards God or away from him, and something towards something that we've put in God's place. Or to put it another way, the eyes way, what are your eyes fixed on? We all have something that fills our view. It could be family, as Dave said, success, things, careers, popularity, or God. There's a wonderful song that we're going to sing at the end called All I Have is Christ. And in that song, the writer is thinking about a time when he was running away from God. He says uh, he was running in darkest night thinking that he knew the way. But in fact, he was rebelling against God. And the writer says, I was running towards hell. I was running a hell-bound race. And the lyrics are incredibly sobering. But then so is that question of where are you heading? That question is supposed to make us lift our eyes to eternity and think to ourselves, what is the ultimate outcome of our actions going to be? Friends, where have you come from, and where are you heading? Where are you going? Two huge questions that the Bible addresses head on. And if you don't think you know the answers to those questions for sure, then please ask the person who brought you here, come and speak to myself, or Dave, or Nigel, or sign up for our next Christianity Explored course, where you get to grapple with those questions by looking at what the Bible has to say. They're two life-changing, fundamental questions that we all need to be able to answer. Where are we coming from and where are we going? So in these first eight verses of uh, Genesis 16, God is creating a conviction in Hagar. He's opening our eyes to the reality of her situation and to her sin. He's helping her understand that she's fled from the place of blessing and she's on the path to spiritual and possible physical death. So far, so challenging. But then we get to verse 9, and God doubles down by giving Hagar an instruction. He says, go back to your mistress and submit to her. I think this is the verse that has occupied the most of my thinking when I've been preparing this sermon, because I keep asking myself, doesn't God know how difficult that is? Doesn't he know what Hagar was experiencing back at Abraham and Sarai's place? Doesn't he know how badly she was treated? How impossible that command is? Go back and submit. I think God's saying that Hagar needs to put her place, herself back into the right place, the place of blessing. I think this whole conversation is a, is a picture of what happens when somebody becomes a Christian. They encounter God, 
who asks them those questions. Where are you coming from? Where are you heading? God makes clear our sin, and then he calls us to turn back towards him. I think it's a picture of repentance. Repentance is about turning around and heading back towards God. I think it's a picture of fleeing from sin, however difficult or painful that might be, and returning to God. Here's something I think we need to learn from this passage, every single one of us, from this encounter with God that Hagar has. That when God meets with us, it will always lead to repentance and turning back towards him and to obedience. We have to go back to the place where we came from, God's blessing, and we have to submit ourselves to him. The answer to the question, where are you heading, for those of us that are Christians, should always be towards God and his presence. So, the angel of the Lord draws close to Hagar, convicts her of her sin, gives her an instruction, turns her around back towards where she came from, and then gives her some amazing promises. And we haven't really got time to look at those, but I do want to just read them, because here's this invisible runaway slave girl, and God says to her in verse 10, I will increase your descendants so much they will be too numerous to count. And then the angel of the Lord says to her, I'll... Uh, you're pregnant, you're going to have a boy, and his name's Ishmael. Why Ishmael? Because that means God hears. There's huge blessings for those of us that turn to God and submit to him. Hagar's experience was extraordinary. The angel of the Lord came and spoke to her at this well. But in many ways, it was quite ordinary. It's the sort of encounter with God that many of us in this room can talk about, and many millions of people through history can talk about. It's God pursuing those of us that were fleeing from him, in his grace finding us, showing us our sin, turning us back towards him, and giving us abundant blessings and promises that we can read of in the Bible. So if that's all true, I want us to consider how did Hagar respond to this, and what can we learn from it? So how can we respond? How did she respond? Well, firstly, she has a new vision of who God is and what he's done for her a new vision of who God is and what he's done for her. Uh, I'm a massive musicals fan. Uh, and this idea of being invisible, unknown, on the outside, part of the oppressed, the marginalized, is something that appears in loads of musicals. Uh, but there's one song in particular that really came into my mind, and it's from the musical Chicago. And it's supposed to be funny, uh, but I think it's one of the saddest songs I've ever heard. Uh, it's called Mr. Cellophane. And it's sung by the husband of one of the main characters. Uh, now, Mr. Cellophane, or those of you that I think Cellophane may be an American phrase, and I cling film, but the cling film doesn't work quite so well in the song. Uh, the idea, though, is being that like Cellophane or cling film, he can't be seen. Everybody just looks straight through him. So here are some of the lyrics Cellophane, Mr. Cellophane should have been my name. Mr. Cellophane, because you can look right through me, walk right by me, and never know I'm there. Now, I don't know about you, but I quite frequently have my Mr. Cellophane moments. Moments of kind of self-pity. You know, wishing that people would notice me, ask me how I'm doing, recognise my circumstances and my position, or ask me the right question that I really want to be asked so I can pour out all my problems to them. And I think probably Hagar, when she was at that well, probably feeling quite like this, the invisible slave girl, and nothing in the eyes of the world, desperate to be known, to be loved, to really mean something to somebody. I think that's probably a feeling that we've all known 
at times, the desire to be known and loved. Perhaps there are times even today when you really wish that somebody knew what you were going through, what your circumstances were. And if so, verse 13 should make you sit up and take notice. So look at verse 13 with me. Hagar gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. El Roy is actually the name. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. This is really the climax of this passage. It's the bit of the Bible or this passage where all our seeing and sight metaphors have been building up to. It's the first time in this passage that somebody's actually seeing something clearly and properly. It's the spec savers moment. Hagar's put on her glasses, her spiritual glasses, and she realizes that she can see things that she could never see before. She finally has her eyes open to who this God of Abraham and Sarai really is. And when her eyes are open, she gives God a name, El Roy, the God who sees me. I think I'm right in saying that Hagar's the only person in the Bible who actually gives God a name. And the name is an overflow of worship from her encounter with him. She's no longer invisible. Her circumstances are no longer unknown. She now has someone, the God of the universe, who cares for her. It's not just a theological name, God's omnipresence, he must see me. It's a personal name, one that's driven by her encounter with God and her new vision of him. What I think she means is, you are the God who sees me. You know me by name, you know my circumstances, you know my sin, you know my sorrow. It's a, wow, the God of the universe knows me, he thinks about me, he loves me. It's worship. Hagar knows God personally. She's had her eyes open. She can see him personally, and God knows her personally. Because Christianity, unlike every other religion in the world, is always personal. It's not God sees, it's God sees me. And the personal relationship with God will always lead to worship, and worship will always lead to repentance, and repentance will always lead to obedience. So Hagar turns around and heads back home, not an invisible slave girl anymore, but the one that God sees. And as Christians, we believe that God has turned his face towards us, don't we? He set his eyes upon us, even though we don't deserve it. Our rebelliousness ought to mean that God, a perfect God, turns his back on us. But the beauty of the gospel is that God turned his back on his son on the cross so that he can turn his eyes on us and see us as beloved children. So it doesn't matter what our circumstances are, because we're not invisible to God. It doesn't matter how others see us, because we know God and God knows us. And if that's true, that should have a huge impact on the way that we see other people and the way that we live our lives. So Hagar, it did for her, because she turned around and went back towards the place of blessing. And that leads me to my third and final point. Hagar's new vision of God gives her a new vision of her relationships and of her circumstances. So Hagar sees God and it changes how she sees her relationships with people and her circumstances. Hagar's encounter with God is so important, so important to her because he sees her. And the Bible is full of God, isn't it? Having a special heart for the poor and the marginalised and the oppressed. And if that's God's heart, then it should also be our heart as his body the body of Christ, the church. Friends, as Christians, we need to make God known 
And we need to make those on the outside know that they're seen and they're loved by us and by God. At the school gate, in the classroom, at work, at home, we need to ask ourselves, who are those people who are invisible to others? They're the people, perhaps, who aren't ever part of a conversation, aren't invited to events, aren't part of a WhatsApp group. I think you probably know who those people are, the people that other people find difficult to get to know, the difficult to love, the ones with edges. As Christians, we're called to get alongside them and to see them and to make them be known and to be loved. And I guess, if you're anything like me, you've got blind spots, people that you really struggle to get alongside, people that perhaps you're a bit embarrassed to be seen alongside. And as a church, we have much the same thing. But the gospel doesn't have any blind spots. Jesus didn't have any blind spots when it came to us. So the call on us is to get alongside those invisible and to really make them feel known and to make them feel loved. Um, I've been leaving, I think, the most difficult question till last, deliberately. This passage tells us a bit about how we are supposed to treat others, but this last question to tackle, and it's the one that uh, I hoped I wouldn't have to, but I'm going to try, is this question. How is it that Hagar was able to obey God's command to turn around and go home? Because if I was Hagar, I wouldn't want to. I just fled from a place of being invisible, of being mistreated. How could she? do that? How could she obey God's command? How could she do the right thing instead of the rebellious thing to do? I think it is purely or simply because she has had her eyes open to the spiritual reality of her situation. She's got a new relationship with this living God and a new promise from him for what her future would be. She understands that it's better for her to be with Abraham and Sarai in the place of God's blessing, even with Sarai's harshness, than with her native Egyptians who were worshipping false gods. Her identity, her perspective have been reshaped. She's no longer just a slave girl, she's an heir to God's promise. Regardless of how she was treated by others, Hagar knew that the eyes of God were on her. So it didn't matter how others saw her or perceived her or treated her, she was loved by the God of all creation and that's enough for her. The third verse of that song I mentioned earlier, All I Have is Christ, says this. Now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. I, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose and let my song forever be my only boast is you. So how can we face trials and temptations like Hagar? How can we not worry about how others see us or how can we get alongside those who others really struggle to get alongside? We can do those things because God's given us a new vision, just like he gave Hagar one. He's given us a vision of the cross on which Jesus died. Jesus who faced the spiritual desert, who had his father turn his back, his face away from him. That same Jesus came looking for us even when we were fleeing from him. We can face trials and temptations. We can head back to God's presence time and time again like Hagar did because of what it says in verse 14. Just look down at that with me. That is why the well was called Bir Laharoi. Well, Bir Laharoi means the well of him who lives and sees. So how can we face trials and temptations? 
because we draw close to God and we daily drink from that well, Bir Laharoi, the well of him who lives and sees. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pray together.